I'm Warren Smith, and today you'll be listening in on my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro, the author of a provocative new book called Reading the Times, a literary and theological inquiry into the news. The church has historically made some big claims on our attention through worship and through uh, regular gatherings together and shared meals. But if we replace those with you know, media consumption, then our sense of belonging shifts from the church to our, however we imagine, our tribe of fellow news junkies. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that we live in a media-saturated culture. I need look no further than this very podcast to identify new media that didn't even exist a generation ago. And that proliferation of new media, with all of its promise of benefits, has also brought new problems, distraction, anxiety, noise, information overload. We're in the paradoxical state of having more information than ever and simultaneously more confusion. More knowledge, but less wisdom. More outrage at the problems we see, but fewer solutions and less clarity about which of the solutions is the right one. If you're a listening in regular, you know that these questions, these concerns are not new ones for me. When World News Group's editor-in-chief Marvin Alasky and I revised his classic book, Prodigal Press, in 2013, We devoted a new chapter to new media and the challenges that it presents. I have many guests on this program, in fact, who have discussed this very topic. So I'm not easily impressed when I encounter a new book about news, media, and the digital revolution. I was, though, very impressed with Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro's new book, Reading the Times. He combines a sophisticated understanding of the impact of new media with deep biblical and literary wisdom. He draws, of course, from scripture, but also from Dante, Thomas Merton, Wendell Berry, Henry David Thoreau, Frederick Douglass, the aforementioned Marvin Olasky, and many others. I found this book fascinating and helpful in my own process of looking at the challenges we face today in a biblical light. Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro has been teaching at Spring Arbor College, but just took a new position as a professor of English at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. We had this conversation via Zoom. Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro, welcome to the program. It's a real honor to have you here to talk about your book or reading the Times. And I've got to tell you, you had me at Henry David Thoreau and uh, Neil Postman and uh, Wendell Berry. Those are three of the guiding lights in my life, and they play prominent roles in your book as well. So thanks a bunch for that and for being on the show today. Well, I'm very glad to be here. And uh, yeah, those those three people have been influential for me, not just intellectually, but also uh, personally. Yeah, well, you know, uh, since uh, Thoreau plays uh, a fairly big part, especially early in the book, I want to kind of start there. Uh, and just by the way, for those of you who are a bit pedantic about things out there, we both know that Henry David Thoreau pronounced his name Thoreau and not Thoreau, but uh, you know, old habits die hard for me. I first read him when I was in high school. In fact, I became a Christian and discovered Henry David Thoreau in the same year when I was about 14 years old. And um, so uh, what, you know, what Thoreau had to say 
in Walden, but also in other essays as well, especially about kind of paying attention to what's going on in the world, was very meaningful to me. And it's also the first part of your book. Why did you choose Thoreau to sort of be a guiding spirit for that first section of your book? Well, it's a great story, Warren. And and it's funny you say that because when I, I read uh, Walden uh, while I was in college, uh, but it was over spring break. And so I read him at a monastery near the campus where I was staying for the break. And yeah, That's he had great. a very formative influence on my, on my life and my thinking and kind of that was a time of vocational discernment for me. Uh, and, and he's one of those authors, I think, who challenges you, provokes you to contemplate more deeply on uh, how and why you spend your life. He's so unflinching and uncompromising uh, and he can be kind of exasperating. But I think he's he's bracing for that very reason. Yeah. So I think, you know, in a time when we're sort of uh, deluged by information and quick sound bites, someone like Thoreau, who uh, asks relentless questions and models uh, a kind of deep, deep thinking is really helpful to, to have as a companion to think with. Well, you know, Henry David Thoreau was alive at a time, I think it was 1830s and 40s, when um, you know, there, there was westward expansion and people were talking about California. And I, I won't get the quote exactly right, but he said something along the lines of, I, I don't understand why everybody's wanting to go to California. There are many lesser Californias between here and there. And that quote, uh, which, I, which I've rendered incorrectly, by the way, but um, really does bring to mind this idea that we should pay attention to where we are in this place, in this moment. And for Christians, I think that has particular resonance because we know that God in his sovereignty placed us here in this moment, in this time. And um, so even though Thoreau wasn't a Christian by any orthodox sense of the word, he was really talking about ideas that Christians, in fact, should be resonating with, I think. is. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and you're right that he's certainly not an Orthodox Christian by any means, but, uh, you know, Walden, and what you could argue is a central passage of Walden, he wrestles with that question, the catechism, what is the chief end of man? And what, and he talks about this elsewhere in his journals too, and one of his pet peeves, I, I guess, is that even good Christians don't take the, the Orthodox answer seriously, and that we neglect to uh, glorify God and enjoy him in the way that he is present and manifest in creation and around us uh, right now. So, you know, Thoreau kind of took these Christian ideas that his, his culture said, you know, gave lip service to and uh, challenged us to think about what their ramifications might be for how we actually live our lives. Well, and lest our listeners might think that we're sort of, you know, building castles in the sky here with, you know, talking about Henry Thoreau in the 18, you know, 30s and 40s and so on. I think it's important to point out that it was also about this time that the telegraph was invented. And in a way, the telegraph is the beginning of the digital age. The dots and the dashes of the telegraph are not too unlike the zeros and ones, the binary system that that we now revolve our lives around today. So in a way, what Henry David Thoreau was saying about his era and the need to pay attention and the, and the, the care that we must take to pay attention in a world that is becoming uh, increasingly atomized, you might say, it was prophetic in the sense that it really does speak to our digital age today. 
Yeah. And, that, and that's why I wanted to start with him. And, you know, I look at some other figures from that, that time period, 19th century, because uh, I think it's really helpful to think about people who lived through what in some ways I might say was a more disruptive technological shift uh, going from, you know, the same kind of printing press that Gutenberg used basically was what Franklin say used. But, but then in the, yeah, in the early 19th century, you get steam powered printing, you get uh, new paper manufacturing processes that make the paper cheap. You get the telegraph, you get the early uh, photography, you get steamships and the, the speed and volume of information just explodes and really Kind of, kind of uh, unimaginable ways. Well, and one of the um, consequences of that is that. Um, well, I tell you what. Before I get to what is actually called, let me ask you to tell me uh, who Mrs. Jellybee is. <laughs> yeah, she's a great one of one of Charles Dickens' many great characters, and, and you know she's a, a very well-meaning person. But she ends up devoting most of her emotional and, uh, and intellectual energies to the well-being of African orphans uh, while her own children run around as uh, more or less orphans in her own home. Hmm. And, and so Dickens, uh, in his portrayal of her, talks about what he calls telescopic morality, uh, this idea that we sort of judge the moral significance of things, uh, of the events in our world, through a kind of telescope that the media functions in this way that it magnifies distant events and encourages us to ignore matters that are, are closer at hand. Yeah. Um, and of course, the irony is we are in many ways more responsible uh, or better able to respond to the needs of those around us than we are, uh, you know, in her case, to orphans in Africa, which is not to say that we have perhaps no responsibility to, to distant problems, but uh, that our our sense of responsibility has been miscalibrated by the media uh, that we rely on to, to convey to us, you know, the news of what's going on, going on around us. Well, in part of the one of the consequences of that telescopic morality or telescopic attention that uh, Mrs. Jellybee incarnates for us um, is is a heightened sense of outrage that, you know, we uh, might know what Justin Bieber had for breakfast and have an opinion about it, but we probably don't know what our own city council voted on last night and that uh, we uh, start caring about the wrong things. We start caring about those things in the wrong way. And um, we, in other words, we have an opinion about things of, that we have no expertise in or n- that really don't matter to our lives. And on the other hand, we have no opinions and no active participation in those things that, in fact, we might actually have more responsibility uh, for. So, and, and that has created in some ways what you've described as a, a tension between outrage and equanimity. In your book, you you quote Pascal to kind of make that point. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, I, I think Pascal is, is a, and I also draw on Thomas Merton. I think both of them are really helpful in thinking about 
uh, how to kind of recalibrate our affections and our attention. Um, and, and I say recalibrate because we don't want to just ignore, put our head in the sands and ignore what's going on around us. That's not right. And Thoreau is not recommending that. He, he, he's very involved in the issues of his day. But uh, we, we do need to sort of approach them from a posture of kind of holy indifference. And Pascal points to a couple of things, one of which is God's providence, that if we look at the events uh, of our day from the perspective that God is in control and that he uh, is working out a plan that we may not be able to understand, we can invest in and uh, work toward the realization of God's kingdom as we, as far as we understand, but do so from a place that is, is not outraged or sort of existentially worried about it, um, but rather a, a posture of, of faithful service. Um, so we want to be involved in, in what God is calling us to be involved in, but we also need to recognize that our efforts aren't uh, the be all and end all, and um, we're not responsible for the outcome. God is. So, so our call is to service and obedience and not you know, winning the culture war of the day or saving the world or, or these kind of existential burdens that we can wrongly place upon ourselves. Well, in fact, you uh, go even further than that, uh, Jeff, in your book. You, you talk about um, the news media really being in the business of creating uh, these pseudo events that are almost designed uh, to command our attention and gin up outrage um, about things that that often barely concern us, if at all. And so we've got to be one, part of what it means to read the times appropriately to, to traffic on the title of your book is to kind of understand what's happening to us, what's being done to us if we're not careful. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I think there is a growing awareness today that uh, corporations and, and the media companies have a vested interest in uh, keeping us angry and upset and emotionally uh, fixated on uh, their platforms. And so I hope that as we understand this, we'll, we'll, we will be more deliberate about refusing our attention and refusing our emotional investment. And, you know, we, we can't care well for the things that we're called to care about if we are so angry and frustrated and, and invested in the things that we shouldn't care about. So, yeah, before we can, can love well, I think we do need a kind of apathy, withdrawal. You're listening in today on my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro. His new book is Reading the Times, a literary and theological inquiry into the news. I'm Warren Smith, and we'll have more with Jeffrey Bilbro after this short break. Welcome back to the program. I'm Warren Smith, and you're listening in on my conversation with Jeffrey Bilbro. Jeffrey Bilbro's previous books include Loving God's Wildness, The Christian Roots of Ecological Ethics in American Literature, and Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms. We're discussing his latest book today, Reading the Times. And let's get right back to that conversation. 
Jeff, I'd like to pivot in our conversation and talk a little about the second part of your book. We, if, if we've spent sort of the first segment talking about um, attention, what it means to really pay attention in a in a way that that is nourishing to us and healthy to us, but also has the possibility of of energizing us for effective work in the world. Um, I think that may be a good description of what the first part of your book is about. Second part of your book talks a lot about time, which in some ways was a non-obvious <laughs> to me um, to, to talk about that next. But the more I read uh, of your book, the more I read into that section in particular, the more brilliant I thought it was to sort of juxtapose the two. And to get into that, let's talk a little bit about two concepts that some of our listeners have probably heard before in this notion of chronos time and kairos time. First of all, would you define find those two and talk about why um, uh, those two understandings of time are so important and how they relate to each other and how they're different? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways in, uh, to define them and nuances you can, you can uh, draw out, but in brief, Kronos is, is sort of un, uh, undifferentiated sequential quantifiable time. One thing after another uh, in an orderly sequence. So, you know, the clock uh, is measuring that kind of time. And Kairos is naming, uh, you know, the right moment for something or, or time as a kind of pattern, whether it be uh, a seasonal pattern or for Christians, a kind of liturgical pattern. But, but the sense that, uh, you know, planting the crop in the spring this year is actually very much like we planted the crop last year. It's 12 months apart, but that's the same time in a sense. So kind of recognizing that there's that the human experience of time has at least probably more, but at least those two really relatively significantly different uh, perceptions or experiences of time. And, and part of my, the reason I turned there is because uh, the news, as its title suggests, really traffics in Kronos time events only. And it leads us to inhabit that uh, dimension of time almost exclusively and our perception of Kairos time and the sort of patterns or cycles of our life becomes atrophied and uh, we, we stop or, or we become less attuned to at least less attuned to the ways in which time is also patterned and cyclical and uh, seasonal. Well, and and again, just in case this might seem abstract, it really has great relevance for the way we live our lives, uh, especially those of us who are Christians. We we I'll just use one particular example. We often think uh, in evangelical ease. If you ask me to give my testimony, um, you're asking me to tell the story of my salvation. You know, how did I meet the Lord? How did I get saved? Or, you know, whatever, however you want to describe that. But if we, and that might be a, a chronos type of an account, right? Well, I was, you know, 14 years old and, uh, you know, I went to a revival service and, you know, it might be a chronos account. But in reality, what's happening in my salvation is something that God accomplished for me. It's really not my story. It is just one way of understanding God's story, uh, a, a much more expansive meta narrative, um, a, a, a story that is really not bound by the chronology of my life because the most significant event of that, which is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, happened far long before I was born. So in some ways, that's how the 
Kairos and Kronos understandings of time are really relevant to our lives today. But what I think you're saying is, is that we should look at all aspects of life that way as having both a Kronos and a Kairos element to it. Am I getting you right in that? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a brilliant example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, your description of that, uh, of the sort of two different ways of understanding uh, one's personal testimony reminds me, I think I mentioned this in the book, but um a lot of Bibles, especially in the English world, um, used to have space for the family tree between the Old and the New Testaments. And if you put your your family tree and your sort of birth and death dates of your family in in between in the pages of the Bible, that is a very physical reminder of the fact that your family story and your individual story is held within the pages of God's story, uh, and it's just just one strand of that story that began long before you were born and, and you know, is not going to culminate in your death, but in uh, Christ's return. So I think recognizing the ways in which the chronology of our lives is not the sole horizon of meaning, uh, but rather the, the meaning of our, of our chronological experiences should be found in the pattern of God's uh, working in history. Well, the, uh, let me ask you to um, say a little bit more about this idea, though, too, is that sometimes we think of Kronos time and Kairos time of, as being antithetical or not uh, integrated in any way. But I think the, the incarnation uh, in some ways is the integration of Kairos time and Kronos time. And it, and it kind of tells us as Christians that, that this is not an either or conception, but a both and conception. This idea of, you know, of becoming and not yet I, uh, might be a way that sometimes that's popularly expressed. Can you say, first of all, am I getting you right in that? Am I sort of understanding what you're trying to uh, say here in this section on time? And can you say more about it? Yeah. And I think absolutely the incarnation is a sort of culmination of this intersection uh, of the two time periods. And maybe and I talk a little bit about that and, and how the incarnation influenced people like Dante as they try to figure out what that means for human life. But, I, you know, you could also look before the incarnation to the, to the prophets. And many of the Old Testament prophets, I think, embody this posture of tension quite well in that they really, uh, you know, they're very attuned to the historical and current events of their day, the, the economic injustice, the political turmoil, the social problems in Israel. You know, they've read the headlines, but they don't see uh, the sort of trajectory or the, the sociological trends as normative or as the horizon of meaning. Rather, they, they call and challenge and provoke uh, their audience to understand their current circumstances in light of God's eternal law and his uh, pattern of relation with Israel. So they're continually, you know, calling out injustice or, or dealing with this issue, but doing so from the perspective of Kairos time and God's, God's relation. So when they talk about the day of the Lord um, in general, they're not talking about only one specific chronological day, but a, a repeated pattern of God's dealings with with his people. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, the prophets again, maybe offer another way of understanding the, the reality that we are called to inhabit both Kairos and Kronos time. 
Well, and again, that has real relevance for us today, right? Because uh, we're supposed to understand the times. I mean, we, we have the example from the Old Testament, the, the sons of Issachar were, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do is the what what that verse says as if there is some relationship between understanding the times and knowing how to act rightly so so we're not saying don't understand the times but you also quote and and, and again I'm, I'm gonna make maybe get this wrong may maybe Pascal again who said um, um, under read not the times but read the eternal was that Pascal who said Augustine it's actually, says, a it's actually no, a throw oh that was a throat as well okay I'm go. sorry wow I should have known that but you know it's Thoreau was, you know, read not the times, and he was actually specifically talking about a newspaper, um, the, the Times, like the New York Times or whatever, but read the eternities. And in some ways, that seems to be what you're saying as well. That's where we as Christians have to hold intention, uh, this concern for both Kronos and Kairos time. And of course, you know, the title of the book kind of plays with that because it says, read the times. But, but I think even Thoreau, when he says that, it's an, a quip intended to make you think, that can't be right. Um, and, and maybe he's overstating things some, somewhat. But I think his, his larger point in that essay is, if you read the eternities, and if your imagination and your soul is shaped by eternal truths, then you will know how to respond to the events of your day in a way that's that's more redemptive and efficacious and productive than if your if your soul is formed by you know just what's going on right now around you well, and since you brought up Dante, uh, I, I think that uh, even the very title of his most famous work, uh, The Divine Comedy, is in some ways a tip of the hat to this idea of Kairos time. Because when we read the Divine Comedy, when we read, you know, The Inferno, uh, which is what everybody reads. Nobody really reads Purgatorio or Paradiso. They all we all read the Inferno, but the the story is a chronological telling, as it must be because of the medium that he is using. But in fact, by calling it a comedy and not a tragedy, which if you just read the Inferno, you might think it would be, you really are getting that glimpse into the into the eternity, into the eternal, into this Kairos time, which says that, you know, even though things are bad here on earth, this is not the end of the story. In fact, this is not even the middle of the story. This is <laughs> this is a part of the story that we don't know what the part of the story is. Exactly. And you're right that naming it comedy gives you the sort of interpretive horizon you need to make sense of the inferno when you're in the inferno, that you know uh, that this is not the end of Dante's story anyway, and hopefully not the end of your story. And it's not the end of the story of the universe, that that uh, ultimately it is reconciliation with God and it is uh, the great wedding feast of the lamb, that that's the end of the story. And so, yeah, if that's the, the meta narrative that you understand yourself to be a part of, then you're going to interpret the particular events of your of your day and of your your time in the light of that overarching narrative and i think that's that's what dante is so good at, at helping us do you're listening in on my conversation with jeffrey bilbro we're discussing his new book reading the times i'm warren smith and i'll have a few final thoughts from jeffrey bilbro after this short break Welcome back. 
You're listening in today on my interview with Jeffrey Bilbrook. Let's get right back to that conversation. Jeff, I'd like to uh, shift gears one more time because uh, if conveniently your book has three parts, <laughs> uh, um, attention, time, and the third part is community. And I'd like to kind of land this discussion, land um, our conversation, and also um, kind of get to some key points in your book by talking about community because, you know, we've been talking about some pretty ethereal ideas, but community is where we all live. I mean, or at least it's where we should live. Uh, and, um, you know, it's kind of where, you know, the boots hit the ground in some of these ideas that we've got to, uh, if we are truly going to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we're going to love God uh, in the ways that God loved us, uh, which was in a sacrificial way, in very real and tangible ways, we've got to live in community with one another. And 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 now to come back to some of the things that we've talked about earlier, if we're consuming media, whatever it is, social media, news media, whatever, in ways that are militating against us living in community with one another, that's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it, I started writing this book a couple of years ago, and I think it's only more apparent now the ways in which the media that we consume and are formed by uh, is shaping us to be in real conflict with our neighbors. And it's uh, very atomizing and fragmenting. And the challenge, I think, is that we, we don't always realize it's the very medium that we rely on to stay informed often that has that result. And Part of what I wanted to talk about was how the patterns of attention uh, that form our lives are going to inevitably play a big role in shaping who we imagine ourselves belonging to and who we imagine ourselves sharing life with. And that's why the church has historically made some big claims on our attention through worship and through uh, regular gatherings together and shared meals. But if we replace those kinds of ecclesial practices with you know media consumption, then the corollary is going to be that our sense of belonging shifts from the church to our, however we imagine our tribe of fellow news junkies. Yeah, well, and that's a that's a problem on all kinds of levels. Um, but but you know, I think just to reduce it to a rubric, um, put your phone down every once in a while and actually talk to your neighbor might not be bad advice. Is that, I mean, is that too simplistic to say it that way? No, I think that's a good start. And and I I do think that there are some creative ways that we can use uh, the news to foster healthy communities. You know, so I, I don't want to be a total downer on technology. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a smartphone for precisely that reason, because I don't trust myself to wield that technology well, uh, and to not be distracted by it and to not have my attention turned away from the people I need to attend to and the people I need to, to be with. Wow, that's really. I'm I'm glad you shared that because that's I know something new about you now. You do not have a smartphone. That's really remarkable. God bless you, and I wish uh, you were certainly you're a better man than I in that score. My my hero Wendell Berry doesn't even have a have a computer, so I uh, I let his memory trouble his ideas trouble my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Well, let let's uh, again as we're trying to sort of land this airplane and talk about community um, a little bit more. What are some practical things that we can do? Um, and I, I, I want to uh, 
get you to answer that question in this context. You have a quote from Marilyn Robinson in your book in which he says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And yet it seems that that fear and outrage do seem to be the responses that media are trying to elicit from us. So can you talk about how we can manage that tension? I, I think we have to recognize it first um, and recognize, as we talked earlier, that uh, a lot of companies have a vested interest in keeping us angry and frustrated and and fearful. And then uh, try to look for ways that we can begin practicing uh, a more hopeful Christian habit of mind. And so, you know, I try to give a lot of different examples in here of, of how that might uh, work out, not just, you know, turning the news off. Because I think, again, I do think it's important to be informed in some respects. But, you know, for instance, one of the things I talk about in the community section is the good of, of taking a walk in your neighborhood and uh, reminding yourself uh, of the people that, that you live with and the area you live and what's what's going on in the neighborhood and, and who needs uh, your attention. And, you know, many of us, even even people who, who might live in, in somewhat uh, – Oh, economically or whatever stratified areas, uh, we have, you know, neighbors who are quite different from us just down the street. And when we, when we break out of our online echo chambers, we, we can be surprised at the conversations that, that arise and the, the relationships that can be formed. Yeah, in fact, I was really impressed by the section on walk. You you quote you cite a book that I have never seen. It's, it's a book that I own. I've got it in my library here called Wanderlust, and about it's kind of a history of walking. And um, I have never seen that book cited in any other book other than yours. So I was like, all right, you got Wendell Berry, you got Henry David Thoreau, and you've got Wanderlust. So that's like I, I found a member of my tribe. Um, another thing that you say in your book that I, I want you to unpack a little bit for me. Um, um, is that fact-checking and media literacy are important, but they're not sufficient. And I think a lot of, uh, of us, including myself, I mean, I actually give a talk to teenagers on, you know, on uh, media literacy and how media affects our worldview and how we should think about media bias. Marvin Alasky and I wrote a book together called Prodigal Press about media bias. And so I, I talk a lot about media literacy, but you, I think what you said is kind of an important, I don't know if corrective is the right word, but an important adjunct, a friendly amendment to this idea of media literacy. Can you say more about that? What, in addition to media literacy, do we need to cultivate in our lives? Yeah, I, I think you framed it right, that it's not, I'm not saying that fact checking is bad or that, uh, you know, being a, a more savvy consumer of, of media is is bad. I think those are important, but I do think that they sometimes uh, we can overpromise that you know if we just have good fact checking, if we just learn how to distinguish good sources from bad sources, then you know we can fix the problem. And I want to say that the problem it runs deeper than that and is more systemic, and that that when we have a public sphere that is oriented around these sort of um, Metatopical, you know, you're, you're not talking about a particular topic. You're not talking about uh, to a particular group of people. It's sort of abstract public. Then we're just not going to be able to have, it's not a, a space that is conducive to the kinds of conversations that we need to have. So you can, you can have some conversations there and that's fine, but we also need to look for spaces and forums 
where we can have the kinds of conversations that will form thick community. So the church, right, where, where we have a shared commitment that kind of excludes certain uh, topics and certain ways of looking at the world or, or, you know, even, even the, the proverbial water cooler at work, when you have a shared space uh, and a sort of shared common understanding, your conversation is going to be different. And so I think we need to find ways to, to strengthen those, um, those opportunities for conversations that happen outside of the kind of naked public square. Right. We mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of the planting season, the rhythms of the planting season. Uh, I want you to say a little bit more, though, about the liturgical calendar, because it seems to me that the that for thousands of years, literally for 2000 years, the church has had, had this pretty. In fact, if you go back to the Jewish tradition, you know, 6000 years that the church has had this beautiful resource um, the liturgical calendar, where th- at certain times of the year we are actively called to reflect upon aspects of God's character or aspects of God's working in the world. And in some ways, we've kind of squandered that in the 20th century. Even among evangelical churches today, you rarely find churches, except for maybe Christmas and Easter, you rarely find churches anymore that follow the liturgical calendar in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I think, you know, I grew up in a, in a great evangelical church, I think, but we didn't really celebrate, uh, you know, we celebrated the high notes, I guess, but not the whole calendar. And, you know, my family, I think, uh, helped to recover that a little bit. And then uh, there's been some resources that I cite in the book that have been helpful to me to begin practicing that. And I really think you're right that it's it's helpful to walk through the kind of drama of God's interaction with creation uh, every year and remind ourselves that we are players were actors in this drama that um, we get to kind of rehearse every year and eventually, you know, celebrate in the new Jerusalem. But, but that's, that should be very formative and uh, kind of a locus of our identity and our sense of, of time and of what's important, right? It's a, it's a great way of reminding ourselves, this is the story in which we have to slot the events of today into. And and it's the dominant narrative of our lives. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeff, there's just so much more that I want to talk to you about this book. I found something to uh, underline or highlight on just about every page. So I really want to commend um, this book to, uh, to our listeners. But at the end of the day, let me just ask you, maybe in closing, what do you want people to get out of this book? Um, and I don't mean, an, you know, academics or someone maybe like myself who is involved in media professionally, but the Christian in the pew, what do you hope that they will take away from this book? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, maybe the easy answer is I hope that they'll think more deliberately about their media practices, recognize that uh, when you're, you know, watching a show or, or reading the, the stories on your social media feed or whatever, you're not just getting informed about what's going on, but there's deep formation happening to your soul. And uh, we should be deliberate about that and, and careful with, with where we spend our attention and where we uh, direct that. So, so hopefully it, it inspires some reflection on that topic. And then I hope that the ideas I talk about will, will give people places to start um, perhaps adopting better practices and not to you know, withdraw entirely from the world, but to, uh, to participate more Christianly uh, with what's going on in the world around them. 
That brings to a close my conversation with Jeffrey Bilbrook. His new book is Reading the Times, a literary and theological inquiry into the news. If you find this topic as fascinating and important as I do, you might be interested in interviews I've done in the past with other writers and thought leaders on media, news, and how they shape our worldview, whether we like it or not. Among previous guests on the program who've had much to say on this topic are Craig Detweiler, the author of I Gods and other books on media and culture, and earlier this year, Brett McCracken of the Gospel Coalition discussed his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, which very helpfully takes a look at how we consume media today and how we should change our consumption habits. I also want to mention Kathy Cook, whose book, Teens and Screens, has been very helpful to me and my family. You can find these interviews and a whole lot more in the Listening In archives. We're now in our eighth year of doing these in-depth interviews, and that means that we've done more than 400 interviews with musicians, filmmakers, politicians, writers, culture shapers, thought leaders, and newsmakers of all kinds. The best way to find these interviews is simply to go to the World News Group website. That's WNG.org. And type the name of the person or topic you're interested in into the search engine. Something good will very likely pop up. Listening In comes to you from World News Group. Your membership in World News Group helps to support this program as well as our other digital and print content. To find out more about becoming a member of World, go to GetWorldNow. The producer for today's program is Johnny Franklin, and he gets technical support from Carl Peetz and Kristen Flavin. Our executive producer is Nick Iker. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and you've been listening in.